Chapter Twenty One of the Fighting Shepherdess. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fighting Shepherdess by Caroline Lockhart. Chapter Twenty One. Heart and Hand. Come in, Bowers. Kate looked up from the market report she was reading as her trusted lieutenant scraped his feet on the soap-box, which did duty as a step to the tongue of the sheep-wagon. After a final glance at the report, during which Bowers eyed the mail-sack with interest, she folded the sheet and turned to him inquiringly. "'I wish you'd order some turpentine, about two quarts of it,' he said. "'What do you want with so much?' She reached for a pad and pencil to make a note. "'Ticks.' I've never seen the beat of em. I bet I picked a thousand off me already this season. They ain't satisfied with grabbing me from a sagebrush as I go by, but when they gets wind of me, they trails me up and jumps me. All the herders is complaining. How's the new herder doing? Bowers's face clouded. Dilbert's having trouble with Nefkin's herder. Says the fella does most of his herdin' in the wagon and there would have been a mix a dozen times if he hadn't been with his sheep every minute. Dilbert says it looks to him like the fellas doing it on purpose. I don't know, but what I'd rather have it that way than for them to be too friendly. More mixes come from herders visiting than any other cause, and I wouldn't run that band through the chutes for three hundred dollars. It would take that much fat off them to say nothing of the bother. Who is Nefkin's herder? I ain't seen him. Dilbert says he's an ornery looker. Next time you go over, notify him that he's to herd lines closer. If he keeps on crowding, I'll take a dog and set his sheep back where they belong so they won't forget it. You can tell him. You think Dilbert's all right, do you? Well, Bowers replied judiciously, he's one of these fellows that would fight like hell for a sheep one day, and the next, if you brought him prunes instead of apricots he'd ordered, he'd turn him loose to the coyotes to get hunks with you. He's all right, only he's crazy. Kate shrugged a shoulder. Is there much water hemlock in the gulch this summer? Quite a bit of it. It's spreading. Nefkins has lost several sheep already by poison, but it's careless herdin'. I should own that section, Kate commented. It's public land. I could have it put up at auction and buy it in, but I suppose they'd run the price up on me just to make me pay for it. How are Sevenson's lambs doing? They're so fat they can't play, and Woods has got 2,500 of the best wetters that ever bladded. Kate's eyes sparkled. I'm going to be a real sheep queen, Bowers. If wool and mutton keep climbing, the price of wool is the highest in its history. Bowers looked at her in mute admiration. He was always loyal, but when she was sociable and friendly like this, he adored her. Alas, however, the times when she was so were yearly growing rarer. Kate went on tentatively. I think I'll cut for a hard winter. You know my motto, better be sure than sorry. I wouldn't be surprised if it twarn't a humdinger 
Last winter was so open. I think we'd be safer if we ship everything that's fat enough. Bowers always said we when he spoke of the outfit, though he was still only a camp tender working for wages. Kate relied upon him to keep her informed of the details of the business, which she had less time than formerly to look after personally. His judgment was sometimes at fault, but she trusted his honesty implicitly, and though she gave him little of her confidence, it was so much more that she gave to any other person that he was flattered by it. "'Guess what that Boston wool buyer is offering me?' she tapped the letter. "'No idea.' Twenty-six cents.' Bowers whistled. "'Gosh, almighty, you're going to take it, ain't you?' "'I'll get a quarter more if I hold out for it.' His face fell a little. "'I'll get it.' Her voice had a metallic quality. "'It's a fine, long staple, and clean. If he won't, someone else will give it to me.' The sheepwoman had the reputation now of being difficult to deal with, of haggling over fractions, and it was of this that Bowers was thinking. To others, he would never admit that she was anything but perfect, though to himself he acknowledged the hardening process that was going on in her. He saw the growth of the driving ambition, which made her indifferent to everything that did not tend to her personal interest. Outside of himself and Teeters, Kate took no interest whatever in individuals. There was no human note in her intercourse with those who worked for her. She cared for results only, and showed it. They resented her appraising eyes, her cold censure when they blundered, her indifference to them as human beings, and they revenged themselves in many ways that lie in a herder's power if he cares to do so. They gave away to the dry farmers in the vicinity the supplies and halves of mutton she furnished them. In the lambing season, they left the lambs whose mothers refused to own them to die when a little extra effort would have saved them. When stragglers split off from the herd, they made no great attempt to recover them. They shot at coyotes and wildcats when it was convenient, but did not go out of their way to hunt them. She was just, but not generous. She had never spared herself, and she did not spare her herders. Hard as nails was the verdict in general. In her presence, they were taciturn to sullenness. Among themselves, they criticized her constantly, exaggerating her faults and taking delight in recounting her failures. She was too familiar with every detail of the business for her men to dare to neglect her interests too flagrantly, but they had learned to a nicety how high their percentage of losses might run without getting their time for it. Bowers knew of this silent hostility, which was so unnecessary, but he dared not speak of it. He could not deny that she had faults, and resented with violence when the criticisms became too objectionable. If Kate had known of the antagonism, it would have made no difference. She would rather have taken the losses it entailed than to conciliate. She would have argued that if she was harsh, imperious, it was her privilege she had earned it. Life for Kate had resolved itself into an unromantic routine, like extracting the last penny for her wool that was possible, shipping on favorable markets, 
acquiring advantageous leases, discharging incapable herders and hiring others, eliminating waste and unnecessary expenditures, studying range conditions against hard winters. Any mail for the herders? Bowers asked innocently, since she showed no disposition to give him her confidence farther. He watched intently as she sorted the mail, tossing him a paper finally from which he removed the wrapper with a certain eagerness. He peered into it with a secrecy that attracted her attention. And, looking at it hard, Kate recognized it as the publication of a matrimonial agency. "'Bowers, you surprise me,' she regarded him quizzically. Bowers started guiltily. "'Aw, oh, it's one they sent me,' he said disparagingly. "'Just a sample copy.' "'Bowers, I think you're lying,' she accused him good-humoredly. "'Tell me the truth. Didn't you send for it?' He squirmed and colored. "'I did write to him, out of curiosity.' "'Don't forget that married men are not hired into this outfit,' she reminded him, smiling. "'I'd be sorry to lose you.' "'Gosh, almighty,' he protested vigorously. "'I ain't no use for women.' The subject seemed to interest him, however, for he continued with animation. They've always something about em I don't like when I get to know em. I've known several real well, six or eight altogether, counting two that run restaurants and one that done my washing. I got a kind of curiosity about em, but I don't take no personal interest in em. Why, gosh, a mighty. Bowers nearly kicked the stove over in his embarrassed denial. Kate looked after him speculatively as he made his escape in a relief that was rather obvious. His protests had been too vehement to be convincing. Was he growing discontented? Didn't her friendship satisfy him any longer? There was something of the patient trust of a sheepdog in Bowers's fidelity. The queen can do no wrong was his attitude. Kate was so accustomed to his devotion and admiration that it gave her a twinge to think of sharing it. She called after him as he was leaving. "'If you meet that freighter, tell him for me he'll get his check if he gets in again as early as he did last trip. I won't have a horse left with a sound pair of shoulders.' "'And I forgot to tell you that somebody salted over in Burnt Basin,' he answered, turning back. "'There's a hundred head of cattle eating off the feed there. We'll need that later.' Kate frowned her annoyance at the information. "'Be sure and warn Nefkin's herders as soon as you get around to it,' she reminded him. "'You bet,' Bowers responded cheerfully, and went on. "'Yes, she certainly would miss Bowers if anything happened that he left her,' she thought as she turned inside to her market report and her letters. It was days, however, before Bowers found the opportunity to go to Dilbert's camp with supplies, and incidentally warn Nefkin's herder, if he was still crowding. Now, as he jolted toward the fluttering rag thrust in a pile of rocks to mark the location of Dilbert's sheep wagon, his thoughts for once were not on sheep or anything pertaining to them. He was, forsooth, composing for the matrimonial paper an advertisement which should be sufficiently attractive to draw a few answers without making himself in any way liable. He thought he might with safety say 
that he was a single gentleman, crowding forty, interested in the sheep industry, who would be pleased to correspond with a plump blonde of about thirty. He would not go so far as to say that his object was matrimony, since, of course, it was not, and the declaration might somehow prove incriminating. The Denver Post was full of suits for breach of promise, and it behooved him to be wary. Bowers felt like a fox at the adroit wording of the advertisement, and chuckled at his cunning. He would notify the postmaster and Prouty to hold out his mail for him, and thus escape further joshing from Kate, who would be sure to observe letters addressed to him in feminine writing. The matrimonial paper had proved to be in the nature of a debauch to Bowers, who had worn it to tatters pouring over its columns. The petite blondes and dashing brunettes, who enumerated their charms without any noticeable lack of modesty, furnished food for his imagination. He selected brides, as the description pleased him, with the prodigal abandon of a sultan. However, the idea of an advertisement of his own, dismissed promptly at first, grew upon him. The thought of getting something in the mail, besides a catalogue, and the speeches of his congressmen, of having something actually to look forward to, appealed to him strongly the more he considered it. Bowers craved a little of the warmth of romance in his drab existence, and this was the only way he knew of obtaining it. Smiling at the brash act he contemplated, Bowers threw the brake mechanically as the front wheels of the wagon sank into a chuck hole, and the jolt all but landed him on the broad rump of old Peter. As he raised his eyes, he saw a sight charged with significance to one familiar with it. Nefkin's sheep were coming down the side of the mountain like a woolly avalanche. In the shape of a wedge, with a leader at the point of it, they were running with a definite purpose, as though all the dogs and sheepdom were healing them. The very thing against which he had come to warn the herders was about to happen. The band was making straight for Dilbert's sheep, which were still feeding peacefully on the hillside. With an imprecation that was not flattering to either herder, Bowers wrapped the lines around the brake and leaped over the wheel to head them, if it were possible. But they seemed possessed by all the imps of Satan, as they came on, bleeding, hurtling boulders, letting out another length of speed at Bowers's frantic shouting. The leaders of the two bands were not fifty feet apart when Bowers, realizing he could not get between them, reached for a rock with a faint hope that he might hit what he aimed for. His prayer was answered, for the ewe in the lead of Nefkin's band blinked and staggered as the rock bounced on her forehead. With a surprised bleat, she turned and started back up the mountain, the rest of the band following. The perspiration was streaming from under Bowers's hat as his eyes searched the surrounding country. No sign of either herder. A cactus thorn that had penetrated his shoe leather did not improve Bowers's temper. As he sat down to extract it, he considered whether it would be advisable to pound Dilbert to a jelly when he found him, or wait until they got a herder to replace him. The man's horse and saddle were missing in camp, Bowers discovered, 
so it was fairly safe to assume that he was over visiting Nifkin's herder. After Bowers had brought the supply wagon up and unloaded, he secured the horses and started on foot up the mountain. From the summit, he could see the white canvas top of Nipkins' wagon gleaming among the quaking asp well down the other slope of the mountain. No one was visible, but as he got closer, he saw Dilbert's horse tied to the wheel. Bowers felt hostile. "'What are you doing here?' he demanded unceremoniously, as Dilbert, hearing the rocks rattle, all but tumbled out of the wagon in his eagerness. "'I was never so tickled to see anybody in my life,' he cried. "'I'm about as pleased to see you as a stepmother welcoming home the first wife's children,' Bowers replied, eyeing him coldly. "'You ain't answered my question.' The herder nodded towards the wagon. "'He's come down with something. Clean off,' he touched his forehead. "'I dasn't leave him.' Bowers immediately went into the wagon, where, after a look at the man, Mumbling on the bunk, he said laconically, Tick-bite. The brown blotches, flushed forehead, and burning eyes told their own story. As Bowers continued to look at the sick man, with his unshaven face and mop of oily black hair, so long that it was beginning to curl, Dilbert commented, He ain't what you'd call pretty. I've no idea he has to keep a rock handy to stone off the ladies. But Bowers was searching his mind in the endeavor to recall where he had seen those curious eyes with the muddy blue-gray iris. It came to him so suddenly that he shouted it. I know him. It's the fella that blowed up my wagon. It's the... that killed Mary. End of chapter 21 Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas